in considering Doug Wilson's view of Pado Communion. We were going to focus, for the most part, upon refuting Pado Communion itself. So, based on uh, one significant quotation, we, we saw Doug Wilson's view of Pado Communion set forth, and then we sought in those two lectures to address that false teaching from the Bible. And I said that after that, we would spend another lecture dealing with some of Doug Wilson's more specific comments and arguments in advancing Pado Communion. But as I was looking at those comments, they really dovetailed with a lot of other things that Doug Wilson has said and written on his blog and written in various books and articles. Many things that he said that deal with the broader issue of piety, of piety in relation to the Lord's Supper, of piety and spirituality and its role or lack thereof in the reformation and formation of a godly society. And so Doug Wilson's perspective on Pado communion is so integrally tied to his perspective on piety in general that we're going to be looking at these things together. And so our topic is Doug Wilson's war on piety. Doug Wilson's war on piety. When we understand the reasons that he rejects credo communion, the reasons that he rejects the idea that children should come to a mature profession of faith and godliness before they come to the Lord's table. When we see his rationale and we see some of the other things he's saying, we realize that if we define piety in a historic, reformed, and confessional way, that Doug Wilson actually is at war with biblical reformed piety. Now that may sound shocking, but hopefully as we get into this, we'll be able to see that this is the case and be warned against it. Now, we need to begin by considering the centrality of piety itself. Piety involves reverence for God, the fear of God, our spiritual relationship to God, worshiping God, rejoicing in God, mourning over our sins, examining ourselves, confessing, repenting of sin, turning to God with reverence and godly fear, so on and so forth. And Joel Beakey has perhaps written more than anyone else on the subject of personal piety and its role in the Christian life and its role in Puritanism. Now, the reason this is important is because Doug Wilson claims to be wanting to reconstruct our Christian heritage here in America and more broadly speaking in the Western world. He's constantly pointing out that our Christian foundations are being destroyed, are being shaken, and we need to reconstruct Christian America or Christian civilization. And yet, what he fails to understand is that the Christian civilization, especially in this country and in uh, certainly the British tradition and in the Dutch tradition as well, that the, the Christian civilization that he wants to reconstruct was actually grounded in piety. It was grounded in a deep spiritual devotion to the Lord. Things that he mocks, things that he thinks are, are you know, airy-fairy kinds of things, these are the things that were the heartbeat of the English Puritans, the American Puritans, the, the people that came over on the Mayflower, the people that drafted the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, the people that spilled their blood for religious and civil liberty in Scotland. These people were 
filled with the kind of piety that Doug Wilson mocks and maligns. And so you can see right off the bat the total inconsistency. Doug Wilson wanting to see this Christian heritage, Christian influence reemerge throughout all of life as it had been within Protestant Christendom in the 1600s and, and beyond. But he, he's actually cutting out the very heart and soul of what transformed our society so dynamically. And it, it's a very sad thing because you get the sense he really does want to see transformation of society, but for some reason, uh, perhaps the influence of the Christian Reconstructionist movement, which many of the people who advanced that movement in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond, seem to have an aversion to historic, biblical, and reformed piety and spirituality. And we're oftentimes, many of them, very critical of the Puritans. Uh, R.J. Rushdoony would, would be one. There, there are others. In any event, Joel Beakey, writing in his uh, massive volume, A Puritan Theology, says this, Even as the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, so the Puritans, who had suffered violence, were motivated in society, church, and personal piety by the overwhelming conviction that King Jesus has conquered sin and death and would continue to do so. End quote. Now, Three important terms are used there that I want to highlight in terms of Beakey's assessment of Puritanism, because again, the founders, if you will, of Western Protestant Christendom, as we know it, it's obviously fading away quickly, but the founders of it were largely among the Puritans, the Covenanters, and then in America in the 1700s, the preachers of the Great Awakening, Whitfield, Samuel Davies, Jonathan Edwards, the Tennant brothers, those who founded Princeton Seminary, and so on. These are the people. So he's, he's using these three terms in reference to the Puritans. He's saying that they were motivated to transform society, church, and personal piety. And if we can just reverse the order, piety, church, and society. This is the biblical br- blueprint for holistic transformation on planet earth by the power of the gospel. This is the blueprint. You see it in the Lord's Prayer. The first petition, hallowed be thy name. We're praying for piety throughout all the nations. We're praying that people would reverence God's holy name, would bow before him in reverence and godly fear before his name, that at his name every knee should bow. So we're praying for piety, people to be converted and to worship and obey God reverently uh, in terms of their, just with their whole being, glorifying and enjoying God. Secondly, we pray thy kingdom come. So there's a collective aspect. You have those who fear God's name, who hallow God's name. Collectively, we call them the church, the kingdom of God on earth. And so you have those who have piety, And to the extent that the church is filled with people that hallow God's name, the church expands, grows, takes the gospel far and wide, and God's kingdom comes on earth. Okay, God's kingdom comes through the growth of piety. So you've got piety as the bedrock. Without piety, the church is is powerless. But there's piety. It flows into the life of the church. The church advances the gospel. And then notice through the coming of the kingdom, 
there is an impact upon every aspect of life in society. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So through the advance of the gospel and the establishment of biblical churches, you see godliness prevailing and pervading all aspects of life, not merely with ethics and morality, but with a worshipful ethic, a worshipful obedience, even as the angels in heaven worshipfully obey God, even so as societies see the church expand, there is heavenly obedience on earth. God's will is done in the state, in the family, in society, in the business world. But notice the foundation is in piety. Hallowed be thy name. That flows into the advance of the church. Thy kingdom come. And through the witness of the church, which is salt, light, and leaven, you see this organic gospel obedience prevailing throughout the world. We've seen that to some extent in certain portions of the world that have been greatly influenced by the gospel. And that essentially, I would argue, is the paradigm for the Christian heritage that we have. At its best, what you see at the time of the Reformation under Luther and Calvin, and you've got the the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession and the Dutch tradition, and then into the 1600s with the Irish Articles and the Westminster Standards, and then into the revivals of the 1700s, the the impact that took place was people were converted. People were filled with the Spirit. Hallowed be thy name, just like in the upper room at Pentecost. They're filled with the Holy Spirit individually. This manifests itself in the advance of the church collectively, and the advance of the church collectively transforms society, turns the world upside down. And If that's the case, then when we say the foundations are being destroyed, we need to recognize that it's not just society that's falling apart. Doug Wilson is quick to point that out. It's not just the church that's compromising. Doug Wilson is quick to point that out. But the bedrock of the society and of the church is piety, the fear of God. When this is lost, when the fear of God is lost, then the human conscience no longer restrains human sinfulness and all hell breaks loose. But ultimately, the foundation is in deep spirituality and piety. It was the Puritans who were heavenly minded and were of supreme earthly good. And it is people like Doug Wilson that recognize the symptoms of the problem. Hey, the church is falling apart. The society is falling apart. But for some reason, he's allergic to the cure. He continues to criticize and mock the very thing that helped at at all those junctures in history that I'm mentioning that brought after darkness light. It was piety that marked the Reformers and the Puritans and the Covenanters and the Awakening preachers in this country. So, again, when when we advocate piety... And when we critique Doug Wilson on this point, it's not because we want to limit God's truth to the four walls of the church or we want to limit the Ten Commandments to the covenant people of God with no transformation of society. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're critiquing Doug Wilson on this point because he's undercutting the very thing he claims to be promoting. And when he does that, he's short-circuiting societal transformation and the reformation of the church at large. And so we have to criticize him. 
on that point. Now, you can see a quotation there, a lengthy excerpt from a Puritan theology in the footnote there. Let me just read that. A pietist sees personal holiness in our relationship to God and man, both in the church and in the community around him, as his primary concern. In this sense, writes Beakey, the Puritans were pietists. The word piety has become a pejorative term today. Classifying someone as pietistic most often connotes excessive religiosity, self-righteousness, or a holier-than-thou attitude. The etymology of the word piety, however, is more positive. The Old Testament term for this word means the fear of the Lord, and its equivalent in the New Testament, eusebia, which means reverence for God and godliness. The Latin term for piety, pietas, indicates conscientiousness and scrupulousness with regard to one's duty to God, to family, and to the fatherland, patria. Calvin said piety embraces every aspect of one's life. He wrote, the whole life of Christians ought to be a sort of practice of godliness. Reformed theologians viewed piety as the heartbeat of their theology and of godly living. This was particularly true of the Puritans. For example, William Ames defined theology as the doctrine or teaching of living to God. He said this practice of life is so perfectly reflected in theology that there is no precept of universal truth relevant to living well in domestic morality, political life, or lawmaking which does not rightly pertain to theology. At its heart, Reformed and Puritan theology is pietistic. The concern of Reformation theology is as practical as it is doctrinal. The Christian's actions in the family, field, workshop, and marketplace, in short, the entire scope of life, are to be a grateful, pious reflection of the grace found in Jesus Christ. The genius of genuine Reformed piety is that it marries theology and piety so that head, heart, and hand motivate one another to live for God's glory and our neighbor's well-being. Piety understood in this sense is not something to be despised or shunned. Being called pious or pietistic in its true sense is a compliment, end quote. So that's Dr. Beakey on the subject that he so loves to speak about and write about. The Puritans, these are the architects of Protestant Christendom as we know it. So piety, even pietism, in some sense, marked the Puritans in that way. And notice that it was not abstractionist piety that had no practical relevance for everyday life, but far from it. Their heavenly mindedness, like the heavenly mindedness of Enoch, actually saved the world, right? While everybody was out advancing culture and designing technology and things like that in the days of Enoch, Enoch was walking with God. And Enoch developed, by God's grace, a godly seed. And eventually, it was Enoch's, I think, great-grandson Noah who followed in his footsteps, walked with God, and literally saved the world by building the ark and continuing mankind on the earth. So, People like Doug Wilson, you'd think in, in the days of Enoch, they would have been mocking Enoch as a sort of Gnostic 
pietist or something like that, but at the end of the day, it's people like Enoch and the Puritans that actually transform culture and salvage and save humanity. So here's the background, the importance of piety in the Reformed faith. Now, Doug Wilson, as you look at that first point, condemns both the American Puritans and the preachers of the Great Awakening for stressing the need for personal conversion among covenant children and for requiring a credible profession of faith prior to receiving communion. So we've talked about the halfway covenant in previous lectures, and we've seen that the federal visionists are very critical of the American Puritans and of the Great Awakening preachers. Doug Wilson is is on board with that hook, line, and sinker, lock, stock, and barrel. This is his perspective. Quote, this is Wilson, quote, contrary to the assumptions of many, the halfway covenant was not the result of covenantal lethargy, but just the reverse, covenantal rigorism. Let me stop there. Again, halfway covenant is hearkening our attention back to the days of the American Puritans when the Puritans were saying that Yes, we'll baptize the children of those who were baptized in infancy, who are members of the visible church, but they've grown up, they haven't professed faith, they're adults now, they've gotten married, they've been baptized as infants. We'll baptize their children, but we won't allow those adults to come to the Lord's table. That itself was far more lenient than many Reformed people, including myself, would would want to grant there. But the federal visionists like Doug Wilson are upset with the fact that these people who were baptized in infancy but who would not give a credible profession of saving faith, that these people are not brought to the table. Why are they not communing? Why are they not able to be brought to the table? This is covenantal rigorism, he's saying, because the American Puritans required, and we've looked at this already so you can go back and listen to the previous lecture, but they stressed the need for their covenant children to experience personal conversion and to make a credible profession of faith and not to be like those halfway covenanters who said, well, we'll come to church. We're not even claiming to be believers or regenerate or anything, but we want to be part of the church. Apparently, it was covenantal rigorism for the American Puritans to say, "Eh, we'll we'll baptize your kids, but we're not going to let you come to the table. So that's the context here. Now, continuing, quote, Everyone had to be born again in a highly visible, demonstrable way, but there were a number among the settlers who were not regenerate, along with a number of others who were regenerate, but who were unable or unwilling to gin up a credible testimony. Let's stop there, okay? See how he mocks the idea, right? He's not even talking about that the standards were too high at this point. He's saying... That, that for elders or a pastor or whomever at that time to meet with someone who wants to come to the Lord's table and ask for a credible testimony is this tyrannical thing. You're forcing them to gin up a credible testimony. Now, we looked at the confessional standards of the American Puritans at that time, and we saw that they actually, in their standards, they would forbid the church leaders from having a rigorous standard. And we read through that, and it just left us all perplexed at why the federal visionists are trying to slander the Puritans in this way. They had a very gracious standard. They said, don't break the bruised reed. Don't quench the smoking flax. It was not a rigorous standard. It's just that you couldn't be like the people Edwards is confronting in his church, where literally they're unwilling to take vows that they will 
you know, walk in obedience to all of God's laws by the grace of God. They're, unable to, they're unwilling to, to even acknowledge that they're born again or that they're regenerate or that they're converted. They're actually rejecting that type of inquiry. And not want, you know, they're wanting to come to the Lord's table as people who in their own eyes are unconverted. And the person who constructed this system was Edward's uh, grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. And we read in his own words that his vision for the Lord's Supper was that most of the people coming were unconverted and they'd be converted at the table, just like he thought he had been. Okay? So when you look at the facts of the case, you see that Wilson and the Federal Visionists are, are just mocking the most common sense biblical reformed piety of, of requiring people to give a credible profession of faith to come to the Lord's table. They're rejecting the idea that the Lord's table converts unconverted people. And, and for, for Wilson, this is worthy of mockery for whatever reason. Continuing here, quote, but these people believed in Christ. Okay, so that's not true. That's just flat out. We've seen it in the confessional standards. We've seen it in the writings of the people who advanced this wrong view back then. And we've seen it in Jonathan Edwards' writing. These people did not even claim to believe in Christ. But Wilson says, quote, but these people believed in Christ, held to the truth of the Christian faith, and wanted their children baptized. They lacked a revivalistic tremens, but they wanted their children baptized. The halfway covenant allowed for this, but maintained a high fence around the table of the Lord. This was zeal run amok, not lethargy. Unfortunately, it was a zeal without knowledge. End quote. So, he, he's saying it's revivalistic and over the top for the church to say, could you share your testimony of coming to faith in Christ and explain what you believe and how Jesus saved you, and, and so on and so forth. The most basic questions that are asked of people to come to the Lord's table, that's what they were doing. According to the primary sources, Doug Wilson says that's too high a fence. You wonder, what is Wilson's vision of the church? Is his vision of the church such that let's get as many people as possible involved so that we can advance cultural change, but let's not set the bar high as if someone has to have a credible profession of saving faith because that's going to ruin the momentum of our social reform project. Who knows what his motive is? But for whatever reason, he's thinking it's a high bar to require a, profession of credible, a credible profession of faith. Another quote, Wilson. A century later, the Great Awakening reinforced this doctrinal assumption in the American mentality. As a result of the Great Awakening, a new assumption spread throughout Presbyterian churches. The presumption of regeneration in the case of children of the covenant based upon the covenant promises was largely displaced by the church's practice of recognizing as Christians only those who gave credible evidence satisfactory to themselves of regeneration. The shift was marked. We stopped believing God's word and started believing converts. Before we would take any sacramental action, we had to hear from man, having heard from God's promises was insufficient. End quote. Now, what he doesn't tell us here is that the presumptive regeneration that was rejected at the time of the Great Awakening was largely among the Anglicans the unconverted Anglican preachers, that's where this comes from. It comes from the dead orthodoxy of liturgical types of people, just like Doug Wilson, 
who are advancing this liturgical presumptionism and children are baptized by the mother church and so they're all regenerate, basically taking a form of Roman Catholicism wedded with nominalism and and all kinds of these things. That's why the Great Awakening happened because that type of theology created a valley of dry bones that needed to be awakened. And it's the Great Awakening that caused so much of the momentum for Christian culture in our country. So Doug Wilson claims, oh, let's reconstruct Christian America. But he's actually taking the side of the people that if they had won out, we would be just as dead as a doornail religiously and spiritually as Europe is today. So it's just total hypocrisy and inconsistency or just plain ignorance on the part of Wilson in making these claims. Presumptive regeneration was not the the biblical reformed precedent they were going back to that. They were actually hearkening back to the principles as we saw in the Westminster Standards in the days of the Great Awakening. True biblical and reformed spirituality. But Wilson condemns these things. Second major point, Wilson dismisses reformed sacramental piety as pietistic revivalism while downplaying the importance of personal self-examination. Wilson dismisses Reformed sacramental piety as pietistic revivalism while downplaying the importance of personal self-examination. Here's Wilson, quote, I believe that in our pietistic revivalistic tradition, let's stop there for a second. We already know that he, he's thrown the Puritans under the bus, right? The Puritans apparently are uh, pietistic revivalists based on what he said in the previous quotations. So be careful of this language. There are people that are new to the Reformed faith and they they flock to Doug Wilson and he explains things to them that he condemns as part of some kind of mainline evangelifish, pietistic, revivalistic tradition and they begin to associate it with guys like Charles Finney, uh, the old Pelagian heretic and and, and they, they don't realize actually Doug Wilson's talking about Reformed piety. Quote, I believe that in our pietistic revivalistic tradition, going back at least 150 years and maybe in some sectors way before that, what we have done is we have used the table of the Lord in a way that is diametrically opposed to the intent of the table. So we've taught people to look in the wrong direction. What happens when you normally observe the Lord's Supper in most evangelical churches? Now, I'm going to stop there for a second because... This, this, is, this is a very important part of, of Doug Wilson's shtick. He describes evangelical churches, and what he's really doing in many cases is describing things that have been historically the norm among Reformed churches. Okay, And he'll, dis, he'll attribute these things to most evangelical churches. And you wonder, those of us that grew up in evangelical churches of, of the stripe that he's describing mainline evangelifish, mainline evangelical churches, whatever, those of us that grew up in that context, we look back and we say, well, that's not what evangelical churches were doing, right? Some of us here have been in our spiritual pilgrimage. We've spent time in churches that would fall into this category and perhaps could be criticized for a number of things, but not for this. So listen to how he describes most evangelical churches. And those of you that have gone to many evangelical churches in recent years or over the years, think back and think to yourself, oh, is this what your typical independent 
Bible Baptist church does? Is this what the local megachurch does? Most evangelical churches. Here's his description, quote, people curl up into a little cocoon. You dim the lights. By this point in his talk here, the audience is laughing, right? So these are all the Wilson's lapdogs laughing at his jokes here at this conference. You dim the lights. You close your eyes and close in on yourself. This is an evangelical communion service, by the way. So they shut off the lights. You close your eyes, close in on yourself, and you mull over your sins. You rake them up and you shut yourself off from everybody else. I don't think I'm worthy. I don't think I'm worthy. And everybody in the church has this automatic assumption that when you come up with enough gunk, you have the authority to excommunicate yourself and just, I had a bad week, and so I'm not going to partake because I'm not worthy, end quote. Is this what's happening in most evangelical churches today? They dim the lights and have an extended period of self-examination before the sacrament, and, and people are confessing sins and raking up gunk and feeling unworthy, and people are saying, I'm so sinful, I can't even partake. Is that what's happening in most evangelical churches today? I don't think that's what's happening in most evangelical churches today. I don't think that was what was happening in most evangelical churches in 2005 when Wilson made these false and misleading statements. I'm not suggesting that should be happening as he described it in any church, but the point is, he exaggerates and, and, and he seeks to sort of demonize and discredit the idea of self-examination and of people like Isaiah. I guess Isaiah was, was just uh, completely off base when he came into the presence of the Lord in Isaiah 6 and saw a vision of the great king on the throne, and he said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I guess he was off his rocker. I guess when Peter said, I am a sinful man, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Or when Jacob said, I am unworthy of the least of your mercies. Uh, I suppose when Paul said, examine yourself and judge yourself and repent and confess those sins, I guess he was a pietist as well, focusing our attention on the wrong things. But the, the, the point here is, I don't think hardly any of us have observed this in most evangelical churches today or in the last couple of decades. It's actually the opposite. People are given the Lord's Supper at will, whomever, whenever, open communion. There, there's really no restriction whatsoever. There's no table fencing. And more could be said about Wilson's own policy in his own church. But the point is, why is he misleading us? If he has something relevant to say here, why can't he speak accurately? Another quotation, quote, I think pastors need to get in people's faces and say, young man, I'll tell you when you're not worthy. And Wilson starts laughing, the audience is laughing, he goes on. And it's a wonderful pastoral tool when someone has stumbled and fallen into serious sin. One of the first things I tell them, and they've confessed, and they're working through it, and it can be pretty horrendous sin. One of the first things I tell them is that you must come to the table. You must come to the table, and it just knocks them over, and it's not easy. It's hard for them on two levels. First, they're humbled, and secondly, the bad teaching we've gotten where we think that the Lord's Supper is introspection time. 
end quote. Now, we've said that the trend among most churches is presumption. The statistics on pornography addiction and usage among professing Christians is off the charts. You would think when every single church celebrates the Lord's Supper based on the statistics that you would have numerous people hanging back because they're living in sin. That's not the case, right? We know that these sins are happening, but we also know the trend is actually for more and more people to be partaking. And in many churches, people that have fallen into grievous, scandalous sins where, where the, the definition of a credible profession of faith is redefined so as to include as many of these people as possible. That is the trend. And Wilson is saying we need to be skeptical of, of this idea that somebody feels so convicted of their sin that they would be hesitant to come to the Lord's table. Now, obviously, in pastoral counseling, that there's going to be an opportunity to get a sense of where somebody is and try to direct them. If they've truly repented and they're, they're walking in the fruits of repentance, of course we would direct them to come to the Lord's table. But we would never say, young man, I'll tell you when you're not worthy. That seems to give the impression that any reason for not coming to the table that your pastor can't see can't be a valid reason. It's externalism it's, it really suggests, again, that Anglican, ecclesiastical hierarchy, ecclesiastical tyranny. You need to examine yourself. Paul doesn't say, have Doug Wilson examine you. Have your pastor examine you. That's part of it. But it, at a deeper level, you need to examine yourself. And you can see here where Wilson is undermining that, and he says it's a false teaching or a bad teaching that the Lord's Supper is introspection time. Okay, introspection, to look into yourself, to examine yourself. Apparently, Paul uh, was, was one of the hawkers of this bad teaching because in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, yes, the Lord's Supper is a time to examine yourself. But Wilson, like so many people who have been connected with the Federal Vision, is allergic to this aspect of biblical piety, and so he speaks against it. He attacks it. He's at war with it. Third major point. Wilson, in an attempt to retain some notion of self-examination, undermines pedo-communion. And this is what you'll find. Doug Wilson says one thing, he says something else. Depending on who he's speaking to, the context in which he's speaking, he'll say all kinds of things. And most people don't have the time to chase down all the different campaign speeches that he gives to, to build his consensus and his constituency. But when you do that, you begin to see that sometimes he says things to retain credibility among Christians that know better, and so he sounds a little bit more orthodox and faithful on certain things because he has to to get invited back to the Ligonier Conference or whatever it is. But then when he's speaking to his own constituency, they're just laughing it up and mocking these things. So listen to some of these quotes and tell me if these comport with the idea of serving communion to an 18-month-old child who has... Uh, essentially learn to, to pat people on the head in response to catechism questions. You, you see that in the footnote, footnote number two. We've read that quote so many times in the lecture series. I'm not going to read it again, but Doug Wilson's 18-month-old grandchild coming to the Lord's table. Tell me if these quotes line up with that. Quote, the scriptures require self-examination, but as we should already have learned, the word prohibits morbid introspection. What is the difference? Self-examination holds up 
the mirror of the Word and asks honest questions. Morbid introspection holds up the mirror of self and spews forth doubts, end quote. Now, there's not much to disagree with there, uh, but you'll notice when he's speaking to, to the people, certain types of people, he just attacks introspection in, in its entirety. Other times, he tries to make this qualification. But ask yourself, is an 18-month-old able to engage in self-examination, holding up the mirror of the Word and asking himself or herself honest questions? If that's what's required for communion, why, why is Doug Wilson feeding 18-month-olds with the elements of the Lord's table? It's inconsistent. Another quote, He says, granted that communicants ought to examine themselves and ought to be receiving exhortations to do so from their first admittance to the supper. What are they to be looking for as they conduct the examination? This means in line with the context that a proper self-examination in coming to the supper would have more to do with whether a young participant had been pinching and hassling his sister during the service and not whether he could articulate the differences between the various theologies of the real presence. If he had been pinching his sister, he would have been in principle doing the same thing the Corinthians had been doing to raise the apostles' ire. He goes on, This is not to set aside the importance of a clear proclamation of the gospel in all this. The word should accompany the sacrament with every administration of it. The clear need to stop pinching one's sister needs to be set in the context of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ by which means he established his body in us, a body that must be discerned in love. End quote. Now, he's arguing that 18-month-olds should be served the Lord's Supper. Okay? Understand that. So an 18-month-old is not going to be able to receive the administration of the Word intelligibly. Why does the Word need to accompany the sacrament? If there are 18-month-old communion uh, communicants that can't make any sense of the word preached, if that's happening and they're still able to participate in the Lord's Supper and take the elements, then why is it the case that anyone in the congregation needs to hear a sermon? If some communicants don't need to understand and hear a sermon, then why do any of the communicants need to hear and understand a sermon? You see, the logic of his whole position breaks down. And the 18-month-old can't be confronted even about pinching his sister during the service. That 18-month-old can't be confronted about anything, okay? And yet, we're serving the Lord's Supper to the 18-month-old child. This is an inconsistent policy. Every time he tries to illustrate what he means, he undercuts the very principle. And the principle that he's using to demonstrate his position is to say that the, the Lord's body is represented in the bread, and that the bread represents not only the Lord's broken body, but also the Lord's body, the church. So he goes to 1 Corinthians 10, and he says, listen, the one loaf signifies the one body. And if baptized infants at whatever age are part of the one body, they should receive the one bread. This is his argument. We'll get to this next time. You can see in uh, an additional quotation under point four, quotation B, he says, quote, the Lord's body, Paul says it explicitly, you're the loaf, you're the congregation, you're the one loaf, Christ is in you, and if you were to discern the Lord's body, you should be looking 
up and down the row and craning your neck and looking to see if the person behind you got enough bread, just looking around, eyes wide open, end quote. Quotation C, he says on 1 Corinthians 10.17, if the loaf is the body, then all who are bread should get bread. This means that everyone we want to be considered as part of the one body should partake. And this means that anti-Pato communionists are in a tug of war over the kids. 1 Corinthians 10.17 means on this take that the non-communicant kids are not considered part of the one body because all who are the one body partake of the one bread. But then on the other hand, we were all baptized into one body. Perhaps those who don't think that our children should be treated as part of the one body at the communion table should stop baptizing them into the one body at the font. End quote. So he's saying... If you don't partake of the one bread, you're not part of the one body. But again, he's totally inconsistent with this because lo and behold, listen to the elder protocols at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho concerning Pado communion Quote, any baptized child may partake of the Lord's Supper provided the parents instruct the child at each observation of the supper and the child can heed the instruction. Wait, I thought every baptized child can partake. Why is there an added qualification such that even he admits in the, in the footnote on the first page of your handout, footnote two, he admits that there was a delay for his 18-month-old grandchild. The child wasn't baptized at 18 months. The child was baptized probably soon after birth, within a couple of months or something like that. And it was at 18 months that this grandchild became a communicant. But that's not his argument. His argument is not if you're part of the one body and you can heed parental instruction 12 months later, 16 months later, then you partake of the bread. He's saying the moment you're baptized, you have a right to that sacramental bread. And that is not, his, that is not the position of his church. He re, you know, at the end of the day, uh, when seeking to implement his position... In keeping with his arguments, he's unable to do it. He's unable to do it. And, and you see the total inconsistency here. Even when he tries to incorporate something of, of uh, biblical discretion and discernment into the Lord's Supper, it undercuts the whole basis of his position of pedo communion. Whether it's self-examination, which an 18-month-old can't do, whether it's uh, requiring a, a two-month-old baby to wait till 18 months because they need to be at the point where they can heed parental instruction. Well, are they part of the body during that period of time, that intervening period where they've been baptized but they can't heed parental instruction? Is he going to answer that question for us? Total inconsistency. So even when he seeks to retain some notion of self-examination or of discerning the Lord's body, you can see that uh, he's inconsistent. Now, just in closing, we're not going to get to uh, points five, six, or seven till next time. But I do want to say something about Wilson's interpretation of discerning the Lord's body. You heard it in the quote that I just gave. And it's important because this evening I'm going to be preaching on discerning the Lord's body by faith. What Wilson essentially says here with virtually no precedent whatsoever right? This is Wilson's interpretation. Wilson and the Pado communionists 
I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any legitimate Reformed commentators that are going to say anything close to this. But he says that discerning the Lord's body is, is not a reference to looking upon the communion elements and discerning their redemptive significance that they point to the Lord's body and blood. Seeing them with spiritual eyes as signs and seals of the covenant of grace and perceiving in the various elements and actions of the Lord's Supper the gospel itself on display. That's what it means to discern the Lord's body. That's what the Corinthians were not doing. They were not treating it like a spiritual feast where the elements, the food on the table, the drink, all of these things have a spiritual significance as we come together to perceive the reality of Christ, His presence, His power, His saving work, and the work of the Spirit applying it to us. They weren't doing that. They were treating the Lord's Supper as a common meal. They were gorging themselves on food. They were getting drunk on the wine. They were not looking at the food and drink of the supper in a spiritual way. They were treating it as a common meal to feast their earthly appetites. That's the problem that was happening in Corinth. But Doug Wilson thinks the problem in Corinth was not that. Rather, it was that people weren't sharing their food with other members of the church. Now, there was something of that, but the reason they weren't sharing is because of their their earthly appetites had taken over. But the point is, he's saying they weren't recognizing the importance of all the other members of the church. And so to discern the Lord's body, according to Wilson, is not to be thinking about our own sin and looking to Christ by faith in the elements. No, to discern the Lord's body means that we're focused on recognizing all the other members of the church horizontally. And so we're not uh, ever closing our eyes. We have our eyes wide open. We're looking at all the other members, making sure everybody got enough bread and got enough wine. and, And we're just focused on looking at other people at the table around us. He says that's what we should be focused on in the Lord's Supper. Quote, looking up and down the row and craning your neck and looking to see if the person behind you got enough bread. End quote. Uh, Now that actually sounds somewhat similar to what's happening in Corinth, although in Corinth they're being selfish. But let's say that in Corinth they, they continued the pattern of turning the Lord's Supper into a common fellowship meal but they just did it with good manners, like at the Thanksgiving table. That's exactly what they'd be doing. They'd be focused on the other people at the table. But you see, the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this is my body. This bread is the fellowship of his body. This this cup is the fellowship of his blood. Yes, there's a communal element horizontally, no question about it. It doesn't mean you can't look at other people. But you see, for Wilson, that's the crux of the matter. That's front and center. That's the key is looking at other people, craning your neck to see what, how big a piece of bread somebody else got. This is not biblical or Reformed piety in relation to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. By the way, if discerning the Lord's body means recognizing who the other members of the church are, which is what he says, is an 18-month-old doing that? Right? Can an 18-month-old determine who the members of the church are? These arguments don't even make any sense. The 18-month-old is not going to be able to determine who the members of the church are. So, Wilson seems clever. He certainly presents his case in a very persuasive way with all kinds of rhetorical devices. He's He's very intelligent. He's very winsome in many respects. And he's entertaining, let's face it. 
Reminds you in some sense at times of C.S. Lewis, just with the colorful way that he speaks. But do not be deceived by his rhetorical flair. What he is promoting is contrary to biblical piety and contrary to biblical teaching. Does anybody have any questions before we close in prayer? All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for the truth of your word. We pray that you would help us to have discernment between truth and error, that anointing of the Spirit that enables us to discern Christ from Antichrist, righteousness from unrighteousness. We pray that you would help us to see uh, the devastating and destructive assault on biblical piety that exists in many sectors of the Reformed Church. We pray that you would enable us to unmask it, to view it and speak of it as it truly is in substance. We pray that you would enable us to, to come before you this evening in the Lord's Supper with reverence and godly fear, to be rejoicing in God our salvation, that we would say, the Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation, that we would discern the body and blood of our Savior, and that we would enjoy the infinite love of Christ with all the saints. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.